Okay, so this week we're going to talk more about an extension of right living. Last week we talked about the ways that the gospel has called us to walk in wisdom and the effects of theology on our lives, on what Christ has done for us and who Christ is and, and all that God has shown us on the ways that we should live our lives. And we see that those instructions extend from life in the church and in our call to unity as the church and in the body of Christ to our public lives with other people, the way we interact with people um, in passing, the way we speak to other people, the way that we're called to do honest work and that sort of thing, um, to our private lives as far as sexual ethics are concerned. We talked some about that last week, how we are called to be light and darkness, and also in our family lives. And that's what Paul spends most of his time talking about here, actually all of the time talking about in um, this passage that we have today. He is talking specifically about right relationships in the family. And it's a big deal because it was a source of tension somewhat in the culture at large. Um, how many of you know who Aristotle was? You remember? At least heard the name, yes. Around the 4th century B.C., Aristotle wrote a treatise, and he said that the basic unit of society is the family. And when he defined the family, he broke it down into these same classifications that Paul does here. The relationships between wives and husbands, the relationships between his children and parents, and the relationships between slaves and masters. And so that was the general breakdown of the family in that time. That was in the 4th century B.C., so we're looking at a little over 400 years later, that same kind of structure is in place and it's still the major, I guess, mores by which the culture was arranged. And so in that society, the father figure was the head of the entire household. He was the master of everyone. He had absolute authority over all in his household. And that extended to the ethical and religious life of everyone under his umbrella as well. So when Christianity came in and women and slaves started converting, not necessarily following the religion of the head of the household anymore, then there was the potential and there was a lot of kind of questions about how it would affect society at large. So the culture was a little unsure about Christianity because they thought it was going to upset the way of life um, that they were used to. And when Paul writes these household codes, in a lot of ways they line up directly with the guidelines that were already present. They, they coincide and they, they work with what was already expected of those relationships in society. But the ways that they are different is that he puts all of those relationships, both the submissive figure and the authority figure, under the lordship of Christ. And even though in a lot of ways the outcome is still the same, wives are called to submit to their husbands just like they were expected to do in Roman society at large, the call for husbands to love their wives was radically different from what would have been expected from them in society. So these rules and these regulations and these guidelines that he is giving are a way to show society at large that 
Christianity is not going to undermine society. It's not going to make things fall apart. It's going to make it better, in fact. We are working with the, the structure that is already there. It's not going to just completely disintegrate because people are suddenly converting. And so he's, it's, it's written to members of the church, but also an assurance of teaching the people who are in the church to live within the structures that are already there. He's not calling for an abolition of slavery, which makes us modern readers a little uncomfortable sometimes. But he's teaching the people who are in those kind of relationships how to do it in ways that honor God. So that's where we start today. Um, And the first relationship that he discusses is that of husbands and wives. But before we can dive directly into that passage, um, which starts in chapter 5, verse 22, we need to go back and read the last part of last week's passage because it's directly related to his call to wives to submit. So I'm actually going to start reading in chapter 5, verse 15, and read through the end of 6, chapter 9, okay? It says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit." Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with them, with him. So Paul's discussion here of the relationship between wives and husbands when he calls wives to submit to husbands is an extension of his discussion last week on life in the spirit 
In fact, in verse 22, where it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, in the Greek, there is no verb in the sentence. It just says, wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. And so the submit there is inferred from the previous verse, okay, which gets its force from the verb in the verse before it when it's talking about being filled with the Spirit, life in the Spirit. And so this call is a call to mutual submission for everyone in the church in chapter 5, verse 21, okay? So he's saying that we should all submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It is the last mark of the Spirit, is this willingness to lay aside yourself your own self-interest, your own um, desires, and to humble yourself in service to your fellow believers. Okay, so that is life in the church in general. We are called to humble ourselves and serve those around us, okay? When it comes to his instructions for husbands and wives, Paul assumes that he is talking to people who are living spirit-filled lives. And as people who are living spirit-filled lives then, then this they will be used to laying aside their selves in service to another because that's just part of life in the spirit. Now, the instructions that he gives to wives and husbands are different, okay? It is correct to infer this, wives, submit to your husbands. Just because the verb isn't directly there in the Greek does not mean that that is not what he meant. It's clear from the context that he did mean to call wives to submit to their husbands. And so... The question then for us is to define what it means to submit because it's kind of a dirty word, right? In modern days, nobody likes to submit. No one likes to lay aside themselves for the interest of someone else. Um, But if we are to be the people of God, then we need to know what it means when the Bible is talking about submission, but also what it doesn't mean. It's important to define that. But before we get into that, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this book, by Timothy Keller and his wife, Kathy Keller, um, called The Meaning of Marriage. Dennis and I started reading this, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. He's farther ahead than me, and I kind of had to hide it from him so he would quit reading because I couldn't keep up. So I haven't finished it, but it is so good. When I ordered it, I didn't know that it's actually, like the whole book is about this passage. It's every chapter takes a different piece of it. And I started reading it, and I was like, oh, that's so convenient. That's so nice to have. But it's really, really a good book. And he starts his discussion talking about what it means to submit to one another. So I'm going to read to you a passage out of it to kind of give us a little context to consider this. It says, Only if you have the ministry of the Spirit in your life will you be fully furnished to face the challenges of marriage in general. And only if you are filled with the Spirit will you have all that you need to perform the duty of serving your spouse in particular. In verses 22 through 24, Paul says controversially that wives should submit to their husbands. Immediately, however, he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, which is, if anything, a stronger appeal to abandon self-interest than was given to the woman. As we shall see, each of these exhortations has a distinct shape. They are not identical tasks. And yet each partner is called to sacrifice for the other in far-reaching ways. Whether we are husband or wife, we are not to live for ourselves, but for the other. And that is the hardest yet single most important function of being a husband or a wife in marriage. This book is so good. Seriously, if you're looking for um, 
a good book on marriage to read together with your spouse, I would really recommend it. Now, it's heavy, as in, like, the, so you're not going to be able to sit down. Dennis was plowing through it. I don't know how. But I was not. I'm like, hold on. I've got to process what I just read. It's really good. Well, what he says there, um, that we are each called to submit and we are each called to lay our side ourselves is true. We are both called to release self-centeredness and consider the needs of someone else first. And when you stop and think about it, self-centeredness is the source of all sin. It's putting your own needs and your own desires above that of God and above that of what God has called us to do. And the call of the gospel on our lives is a call to deny ourselves in every way, and it extends into our marriage relationships. Spirit-centered selflessness is the goal that we should all be working toward. Selflessness is the way that we demonstrate Christ to the watching world. And so it doesn't mean that you think less of yourself or more of yourself, but that you think of yourself less. Does that make sense? You think of other people more than you think of yourself. You consider the needs of others above your own. And when it comes to the marriage relationship, Paul's instructions to both husbands and wives are other-centric. It is focused on how we can serve the other, not our own self-interest. And so when we come to the role of wives and women in marriage, um, it's important for us to have a good biblical definition in mind when we talk about it. So... Before we talk about what submission is, let's talk about a few things that submission is not. It is not a license for abuse or domineering behavior. It is not um, a call to blind obedience. Um, it is not okay in the marriage relationship. Like You cannot use, the Bible says that you should submit to me, um, as a reason or a justification for abusive behavior. That is, it does not make it okay. That is not what submission is. Um, submission is not something that can be demanded. It doesn't say here that husbands get your wives to submit. That is not what it says. It is a call for women to willingly and willfully submit to their husbands. It is a gift that is freely given. It is not um, behavior that can be exacted or demanded from you. It's also, this call to submission is not applicable to all male and female relationships. This is specifically in marriage. So I am called to submit to my own husband. You are called to submit to your own husbands, but I am not called to submit to your husband. Okay? So it does not mean that women are inferior to men, just that in the relationship there needs to be some sort of authority, some sort of leadership, and that role is a God-given role that has been applied for men applied to men. And the other thing to remember is that submission is not just for women. In that previous verse, we are called to submit to one another in general. In marriage, we wives are called to submit to our husbands, but our husbands are called to submit to the Lord. And so each one of us has to submit um, both to God first. We both have to submit to God first. And then we individually have to submit to our husbands. This is the thing about submission that's beautiful to me, is that what it is, is a picture of Christ in the church. When we 
submit ourselves to the leadership of our husbands, um, then we become a living parable. Do you all know what a parable is? Jesus told parables a lot of the times when he was speaking to large crowds. A parable is a story that is meant to point to a larger truth. So when our marriages are functioning properly, um, according to the biblical model, then we are a parable of the relationship that Christ has with the church. We are pointing to a bigger reality. Um, both in our submission to Him as we submit to the Lord and also in His love for us and the way that He loves us. It's a mutual um, sort of self-giving that reflects the ways that Christ has given Himself to us and how we in turn then devote our lives to Him because He has done so much for us. And so the marriage relationship is meant to demonstrate that larger truth. Submission... um, at its heart is an attitude of amenability. <laughs> what does that mean? Does anyone know what? If someone is amenable, what are they? Cooperative. Cooperative. Yes, it's a good word. Agreeable. Um, receptive, in a way. We're not hard or harsh or domineering, but we are soft and receptive and gentle. We're agreeable. Um, at, at its heart, it is an attitude of respect and deference. You know, it does not mean that you cannot have opinions or that you don't have a voice or that um, what you think does not matter, but that um, you defer to your husband's leadership when those discussions arise. You trust him to be submitting to the will of the Lord. And that's a hard thing. It's easy to talk about it in general terms, um, but in reality and marriage, you know that these issues come up basically every three minutes, <laughs> you know, whether it's something silly like whose brand of mayonnaise you're going to buy, <laughs> which I did not submit in that, by the way. We go with craft. We are not a blue plate family. <laughs> like my husband's family is a blue plate family, but we are a craft family. I'm just saying that is the better way to go. I used my voice <laughs> on that one. <laughs> So, you know, that's a small thing, right? But in truth, in truth, it happens all the time. I mean, there are all sorts of decisions you have to make in a marriage, and there has to be some give. Someone has to be the softer one on it. And that is what the Bible is calling us to do as women, is to do to willingly submit our own wills to that of our husbands. And when we do that, it is a way to honor the Lord. It's a way to point to... Um, the one who is greater than us and who gave up everything for us. So Paul just spends three verses talking to women, saying basically submit to your husbands and everything. But then he spends nine verses giving instructions to husbands because obviously they needed a little bit more instruction on the matter. And so the role of husbands then is that they bear the responsibility of being the head of the household. Their authority comes from God, and it's meant to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church, like we've already said. Um, Mary Cassian, I, on the, in the Facebook group today, I linked to an article that she had on her blog, which if you have a few minutes later, or if you haven't looked at it yet, you should really go check out the Facebook group and click, click on it about what submissiveness is, what it means in marriage, um, some kind of misconceptions about submission in marriage and that sort of thing. But Mary Cassian is a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. She's written lots of books, Conversation Peace. Have you all ever heard that one? She wrote Conversation Piece and a a bunch of other books for women. 
But she says that the Bible teaches that a husband's position as head of the home does not give him the right to rule, but rather the responsibility to provide loving oversight. Husbands are called to give up self-interest just like wives are, but they are to do it in a more radical way or a way that would have been more radical to their society as they knew it. You know, wives were expected to submit, but husbands were expected to demand submission. Husbands took for granted the authority, and so it was within their rights and within the expected behavior of their culture for them to exact that submission, to um, demand it with physical punishment, or to make that happen, because that was their role as the head of the household, was to make sure that they were in charge. So when Paul calls husbands then to love their wives, to give themselves up for them, just as Christ loved the church, it is a radical departure from what they would have been accustomed to. They are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which is an altogether sacrificial and selfless kind of love. There is nothing selfish about the love that Christ showed the church. There is, there is everything about it is self-giving. And I know we have talked about this verse in here before, but Romans tells us that Christ died for us. He showed his love for us when we were still sinners. So as sinners, we were quite unlovely. You know, there's nothing pretty about sin. So he did not love us because we were lovely, but by loving us, he made us more lovely. Does that make sense? Under the force of his love, we are transformed into something altogether different. And that's exactly what this verse is saying here. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now this is not saying that the love of our husbands sanctifies us and makes us holy. That's not what it's saying. But it's a call to, for husbands to love us even when we are unlovely because that is how Christ loved us. It's a call um, for love in the hard times and in the good times, not just when you feel like loving someone. So in our culture, <clears throat> When we talk about love and you talk about romantic love and falling in love with someone and choosing someone to marry based on how you love them, um, we tend to equate it with this emotion, right? Something that you feel, it's all like sparkly and fireworks and passion and, you know, there's, it's a feeling that you have, right? But can you command feelings to appear? No. So then when Paul tells them to love their wives, he's not talking about an emotional thing. He is describing a set of actions that define love. He said, this is what love looks like. Love looks like giving yourself up for someone. It looks like being willing even to die for them. It's a call to displaying behavior that is the embodiment of selfless action. That is what Christ did for us, and that is what he is calling husbands to do. This kind of love is tender. It's understanding. It's forgiving and helpful. It's self-giving. It's intentional. 
um, and it is measured not by what you get back in return from it, not the happy feeling that you get when you are on cloud nine because, oh, they just held your hand for the first time. No, it is not that fuzzy. It's not measured by the, the depth of your feelings, but it's measured by how much you are willing to give up for it. That is the measure of love. The role of the husband then in marriage is one of sacrificial love, but it's also of nourishing and cherishing, which he goes on to say in the next set of verses. Um, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own self, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. It is the most natural thing in the world to eat when you are hungry to address a hurt when you are hurting, to do something to fix it. We do it by instinct. We do it naturally because it's just part of taking care of yourself. That's what you do. And what, he said, what he's saying here is that it should be just as instinctive for husbands to care for their wives in that way as they would for themselves. And it extends beyond physical care but also to spiritual care. So the role of nourishing is... A spiritual nourishment as well so that the husband is called to foster the wife's gifts to encourage her um, in spiritual growth just as wives then are called to support and encourage our husbands in their roles as head of the family and to tie it all together Paul bases these instructions in creation okay so these verses that he quotes in verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2, where um, God has just created Eve out of Adam's rib, and Adam sees her for the first time, and he names her woman, and she say, he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Therefore, a man shall leave his family, and the two shall become one flesh, Right? And so the significance of that in this context is that these instructions that he is giving then are not cultural. This is not something that is going to fade with time. They are timeless because remember that when God created man and woman and these verses were said, the two shall become one flesh, that was before sin entered the world. It is during a time when God had declared everything good. And so that is God's ideal for marriage, is that the two shall become one, that we would be unified, that we would be, be one unit. And if you think about it, um, think about some of the people that you know who have been married for 50 or 60 years for a long time. You know, they become less of a him and a her and more of a them, right? They're a unit, um, and you can see it even, I mean, Dennis and I have only been married for 11 years, but we think the same way about things. You know, I don't know if the longer I'm married to him, I become more like him or he becomes more like me or we just become more like us together. You know, the Lord knits together husbands and wives in ways that are a great mystery, just like Paul says here. And the neat thing about it is that from the very beginning of time, what Paul is saying in these verses the mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church, is that from the very beginning of time, from that very first marriage, God has always intended for marriage to be a picture 
of the relationship between Christ and His church. That was always the goal of marriage, is to reflect this deep and abiding love, this covenant um, that God has made with humanity. And so when we, when our marriages are following the biblical model, it becomes a powerful picture of the gospel in action. Because how else can you explain why you would willingly submit to someone in our culture? It is countercultural. The gospel calls us to a life that is different than the one that our culture expects from us. You know, in our culture, if they're not meeting your needs, then you can get out. If you no longer feel love, then it's totally acceptable to fall out of love with someone and file for divorce. You know, but this that Paul is saying here is something altogether different than what our culture tells us marriage is about. This is a covenant. This is abiding, and it's meant to reflect the ways that we are unified with Christ. And so it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And living it out then, um, putting it in that context, gives our submission as wives greater meaning and greater purpose. If we can consider it an act of submission to God and of bringing glory to God, then it changes it. It changes it from being um, something that is demanded of us to something that we willingly do because we want to glorify God. We want to show people what God is like and we want to show the world that the God that we serve is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of our service. And because we love Him and trust Him and submit to His authority, we will follow His instructions even in marriage that our marriages will reflect His ways um, because He is our Lord. He is Lord of all, even marriage. And the hard thing, I think, you know, this is the ideal. This picture that Paul paints is the ideal. But in reality, you know, life is hard. Things happen. You drift apart. You don't always feel like submitting. Your husband is not always loving you sacrificially. Sometimes husbands are selfish too, just like we are. And so the question then for us is, what if you are married to someone who is not living out this ideal? Are you still called to uphold your end? Yeah, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, this is not, this doesn't say submit to your husband as long as he is sacrificially loving you. It's not dependent on what you get in return. You do it for them, not for anything else. So, yeah. So, after Paul um, finishes his discussion of this high ideal that he's pointing us toward for marriage, you know, he turns then to his, the relationships between children and parents and also the relationship between slaves and masters. And the time that he spends on this is significantly smaller than the time that he spends on marriage. And it's quite short. In fact, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> and in the same way that there were already like societal kind of ideals and rights and norms, in the marriage relationship, that same thing was true 
and the relationship between parents and children. Um, <clears throat> sorry. There was um, an ideal, I guess, called the patria potestas, where fathers had absolute legal power over all of their children. And their power and authority lasted until the father died. So it lasted for the whole of the father's life. Um, and when I say they have authority, they even had authority over the life and death of newborn children. So if a child was born and he was scraggly and weak, then the father could decree that that child didn't deserve to live <coughs> and could order the death of the child. So um, it was a harsh set of norms that was there. But in reality, like those are the things that could happen, that it was permitted for fathers to, um, you know, with their children if necessary, like with actual whips if necessary, and, you know, to punish them however was they considered best. Um, but in reality, it was not like that in every household. Just because it was acceptable for that to happen didn't mean that all households were actually like that. Just like in our own culture, you know, the way a household runs is highly dependent upon the character of the people in it. And so it was the same way there. But in a Roman household, then mothers um, tended the sons and children. They were kind of in charge of them until they were about seven years old or so. And then fathers took over from there. They, would take, they took over the educational life of the child. They were responsible for their upbringing and for their well-being. And they continued to be that way until they were about 16. I know this is definitely true for sons. The books didn't say anything about daughters. I don't know what happened to the daughters. But as far as sons are concerned... Fathers were responsible for their upbringing, their education, their well-being until they were about 16. And then they would send the sons off to a trusted family member um, or a close family friend to learn from someone else for a couple of years. But the father always had primary control over the education and over kind of his upbringing. This included then um, something called the paternal precepts, which were passed along, that included ethical and religious instruction as well. Remember I mentioned earlier that the entire household was expected to follow the religion of the father. Well, this was part of their education growing up was, you know, this is what we believe. You should also believe it. And so um, <clears throat> this call then that Paul gives to fathers to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord um, falls in line with the society's norms of the father passing along instruction. The only difference is um, their education would have been distinctively Christian, which is a big difference when it comes down to it. And also, um, these instructions to children assume that children are human beings with rights of their own, not just property that is owned by the father who has complete authority of them. So he gives instructions to the children and expects them to do it because they are individuals with a will of their own who, and a soul of their own who can then follow these instructions. So when he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, it was a way for young Christian children to live out their faith, to submit to their parents and obey their parents 
um, was a way for them to also obey the Lord. And so it was a way for their faith to be made real. It was part of their Christian commitment. And Paul gives a few reasons why they should obey. He says, because, you know, as part of their Christian commitment, he says, for this is right. It's the right thing to do. You know, how often do we give that as a reason? Because it's right. This is how it ought to be. This is right. Yes, because I said so. That's why. (laughs) Right? He says, because it's the right thing to do. Um, And then he goes on and said, the third reason that he gives for calling children to obedience is because it is lawful. And when I say lawful, I'm referring to the Old Testament law. He quotes um, the Ten Commandments here. Honor your father and your mother. And he's saying this is something that has been expected of children for all of these generations and it's still expected of you. And also there are rewards at stake because there's a promise tied to the command that it may go well with you. The promise is for um, long life and for prosperity, basically. And so children are called to obey and to honor, which is slightly different than the call for wives to submit to their husbands, right? Like, what is the difference between obedience? I feel like obedience is a form of submission, right? Like, you have to submit in order to obey. It is part of it. And honoring, then, is an attitude of respect and reverence. It is um, one of acknowledging the authority that the parents And the interesting thing here, too, that is different from perhaps the rest of the society is that he says, obey your parents in the Lord, not obey your father. He says, obey your parents. Children are called to give obedience to both parents, not just one. And on the flip side, then, parents also have obligations to their children. Um, It's not about wielding power over children. It's not about pushing children past what they can handle. Um... We've all seen instances where parents are verbally abusive to children, where they belittle them when they fail, perhaps, when they don't perform as expected. Um, It is not about verbal and emotional abuse. That's what this means when it says, do not provoke them to anger. Um, But it says, but rather bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Our duty as parents, first and foremost, is about using our authority wisely to train our children in the art of godly living. That is what we are called to do. And the best way that we can instruct our children in godly ways is to practice them ourselves, to show them what a godly life looks like. It is our responsibility as parents. So as parents, it's not about lording our authority over them or demanding obedience, but using our authority in ways to point them to Christ. Does that make sense? And that is hard because I do sometimes want to be that mama that says, I am your mama, obey me, you know, because I'm your mama. And that is true. There is a time when it, you know, at at some point children have to obey you just because you're their parents. They have to submit because, you know, When we teach our children to submit and to obey, we are also teaching them how to submit and obey to the Lord. And so if we want our children to be the kind of children who grow up to be servants of the Lord, 
who grow up to know how to submit to authority, then we have to teach them how to do it in our own homes. But we never do that in abusive ways to the kind that he is talking about here, provoking your children to anger. But we do it in ways um, that are fitting with Christian conduct. So there are limits to our authority. There are boundaries to the um, ways our authority can take shape. You know, you can't just run roughshod over your children just because they're your children and you're their parents. That's not okay. What Paul is saying is, you know, you, you must contain your authority to ways that are appropriate for their relationship. And then the last section that he discusses here is the relationship between slaves and masters. Now, I'm pretty sure that this is a relationship that most of us have not experienced personally, okay? Um, but I think the principles that he talks about here can be applied to any relationship where there is an imbalance of power, okay? So it is not, I'm not saying that is it is directly like, um, parallel to like a workplace environment, a boss and an employee. It is not directly parallel at all. There are obvious differences in the relationships. However, the principles from the one can be applied to the other. Does that make sense? That's the closest thing I think that we're going to have in our own day and age. Roughly a third of the population in Ephesus and the surrounding area were slaves. So it's not a small chunk of the population that he's talking about here. It's, it's, it would be a rather large part of it. They had limited rights. They were subject to abuse and exploitation. Okay, <clears throat> And it does bother us, I think. And sometimes you know, the church gets slammed for this, for not coming out against slavery. But Paul and the early church leaders were not seeking to like redefine society. They were seeking to redeem the society in which they lived. So they were trying to transform it for the better. And over time, <clears throat> as time went on, and the principles of Christianity, of treating slaves as brothers, um, of Christian love and charity, kind of spread throughout the region and exerted greater influence, in the ancient world at least, slavery kind of fizzled out. It was not nearly as prominent as it once was. And so in the end, Christianity did have an influence on it. It was just indirect in the way that it was approached, okay? You can see um, this is not the only time that slavery is mentioned in the New Testament. The book of Philemon is just one book, one book, one chapter. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a slave owner named Philemon. Um, and he's writing to Philemon because Philemon's slave Onesimus had escaped. He had run away, basically, and he had come to Paul. And Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, okay? But he sends him with a letter. And in the letter, he pleads with Philemon to treat Onesimus, who was a runaway and who deserved punishment, um, as a brother in Christ. He holds him to an ideal of love as opposed to um, the expectation of exerting his authority. And so he, in Paul's opinion at least, then the, a relationship with Christ should transform all other relationships, including that of slave and master. So clearly in the relationship there is an imbalance of power. <clears throat> but Paul asked Christian slaves to submit 
not because they had to or that they were obligated to, but because it was a way for them to honor the Lord. That's what he says in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So they're supposed to be in fear and trembling, not of their masters, but of God of Christ. They are supposed to be in fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord, and when we say fear of the Lord, it's reverence. It's awe. It's because of who Christ is, because of what Christ has done for you. You serve your masters as a way to serve Christ, as a way to represent him in the world. Therefore, if you were serving Christ and not your masters, your work should be rendered with a good cheer with heart um, and with sincerity as if the work is being done for God, not just your masters. You're not to do it grudgingly, not just for show, but you're supposed to do it with sincerity and earnestness so that by your very attitude of willing servitude, you are showing the watching world what Christ has done for you by willingly serving us and willingly submitting Masters, on the other hand, should treat slaves with Christian goodwill. They should make it easy for slaves to work for them. Threats and punishment might render good behavior, but is it worth it to get it that way? Paul says that it's not. He says you will be held accountable for your actions. He reminds them in verse 9 to remember that both their master and yours is in heaven. And what he's saying is you will be held accountable for the way that you treat people. Whether they are your slave or not, you are still called to treat them with love and with kindness and with Christian courtesy. And so we see in all of this that the gospel has an effect on all the relationships of our lives and those where you know, our work relationships where there might be an imbalance of power where we are under someone's authority and we don't want to serve them, but we have to. You know, we can take these principles of willing service and demonstrating the way that Christ has served us and show them that with that and apply it to that. And in the same way, when you are in a position of authority, you can either lord it over someone or you can be the type of person that people want to serve. You know, and in all of our most intimate relationships, whether it's the relationship, the marriage relationship, the parenting relationship, or this slave and master, this authority subordinate kind of relationship, um, in all of our intimate relationships that we have, that is when you see someone's true character come out. You see it in the way that they treat other people. It's not by the words that they say, but it's in the way they interact with the world around them. It speaks volumes about the type of people we are. How we treat other people matters. So in all of these areas, we have a choice to make. We can choose whether or not we are going to honor God or whether or not we are going to honor ourselves. And that's a question that we all must answer. What, what's it going to be? What's it going to be for you in, in marriage, in parenting, in positions of authority, or in positions where you are called to submit? How can you honor God in your relationships? How do these principles apply to us today? That's 
something that only you can answer. But I do hope and pray that um, you will take these instructions to heart. It's hard. It's not easy. The call to um, deny ourselves and take up our cross is not an easy one. And yet, in the end, it is worth it because it is the most effective way of showing the world what Christ is like is when we are like him ourselves to give, be able to give people a reason for our behavior, to say, I am this way because Christ is this way. To model him to the world is the most important reason any of us could ever have for doing that.